Welcome to the latest podcast in the Between the Lines series, which is devoted to the pleasures and challenges and joys of literary translation. I'm Tim Matthews from University College London, and this venture is jointly organized by myself and Simon Cook in the University of Edinburgh. And today, we're very delighted to have with us Daniel Hahn, who is an accomplished translator from Portuguese and French, and currently the program director for the British Centre for Literary Translation. And uh, Daniel, I just wanted to start uh, asking you a very general question, how you came to, to translate, how you came to enjoy it, what you get out of it, that sort of thing. Uh, that's quite a big one to start with. <laughs> how I came to translate is quite easy. I came to translate by accident, which is how most people, I think, until relatively recently came to, to translate. I think it's slightly different now, but until relatively recently, almost everyone I know who, who uh, translates did it as a, sort of as a favour. They kind of stumbled onto it. Some friend said, I don't suppose you could possibly, and then they did, and then uh, it was too late somehow. Um, and that's certainly what happened to me. I had no intention of being a translator. I had no... Uh, aspiration or any or confidence that I could do it, um, and a friend at Arcadia Books asked me to to read a book for her, which was written in Portuguese, just to to tell her if uh, I thought it was any good. And I read it and said, "This is wonderful. You must publish it." And then she said, "Well, in that case, do you want to translate it?" And I said, "Yes." And it was only after that that I thought, "Yes." What do you mean, yes? Um, I kind of I suddenly got cold feet, and she managed to persuade me to to stick with that uh, initial decision. It seemed, in retrospect, it seemed like an extraordinary thing to have agreed to do because I think there is a certain degree of uh, hubris possibly behind that. Um, simultaneously saying, "I think this book is absolutely magnificent," and saying, "I could write this. Um, I could I could write this in English. How hard can it be?" But I did. I translated that one book. Uh, uh, sort of as a favour for this friend, as a as what I thought was a one-off, um, and then didn't translate again for quite a few years, and it was only with the second book, which was when she bought the second book by the same by the same author, uh, José Duarte Aguadilla, an Angolan writer, um, a book called The Book of Comedians, um, because that book won a prize and because it was quite well received and it it sort of got reviewed and so forth. Um, that is the point at which I started getting quite a lot more work and started concentrating on. Uh, on translating more regularly. It won a prize in Spain, didn't it, that, that book? It won a prize all over the place. Here, here it won the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize. Uh-huh. So that was the one which, from, from my point of view, because it was for the, for, the, for the English version, that was the one which was sort of useful for me in terms of, I suppose, making me known to the, the, the very small circle of people who publish international fiction. But uh, no, he's won, he's won prizes everywhere. Hmm. And uh, what about Portuguese? What is your relationship with Portuguese? How did that I start? have... Um, I have Portuguese and Spanish through my parents. My, my, my dad was born in Argentina, my mum in Brazil. Mm. So I have, um, I, I kind of described it as I, have, I sort of have genetically got those languages. Um, I don't, in fact, have very good functional production of those languages. I don't speak either of them very comfortably. Uh, I don't write either of them. But I'm very used to having both of those languages. Uh, you know, floating about. Hmm. Um, I spend a fair bit of time in, in Brazil, so I'm used to having the languages uh, around me. So I'm, I'm a, a fairly comfortable uh, consumer of those languages, um, and I'm a fairly comfortable producer of English, which is my hmm. my working language, is my, the language in which I'm a writer, I guess. Hmm. Um, and so, being a translator, which 
marry those two requirements, being mm. a consumer of one and a producer of the other, mm. seems to seems to fit to my brain quite well. I was born in Buenos Aires as well, uh, and I often wonder wh whether uh, an a relationship with languages is often an effective one, even though I don't actually speak Spanish anymore or use it at all. Um, do, do you think, um, as a translator, it's important to have some sort of affective, you know, emotional identification or involvement with uh, the text that you find yourself translating? I think, uh, well, from a purely practical point of view, it's easier to do it if you like it. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean you have to have... Uh, sympathy I suppose if that's the right word um, but you're being asked unlike a, a normal reader you're, going, you're being asked to live in a book for several months mm -hmm. um, and I have translated books which I've thought are obviously very very good books but I found it very hard to do just because I wake up in the morning and go I don't want to be in that world it's mm -hmm. a really unpleasant really toxic world <laughs> um, I can think of one which I will not name but <laughs> which is a very good book but which is a, it's a, an unpleasant place to be Mm. Um, and so I think you do have to, you don't have to, but it helps to have a certain degree of uh, comfort um, and a certain degree of sympathy here probably is the right word with with uh, the voice of the writer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there are good translators and there are bad translators, but I think it's also not as simple as that. I think even the good translators are better with the, with the right kind of writer. I think it's an, an interesting uh, challenge for publishers, which some are very good at, finding the right translator for the right writer. It's not simply a matter of, I mean, Anthea Bell, as you know, is a magnificent translator from both French and German, mm -hmm. but I don't think she would always be your first choice for any French or German book, however great she is, because mm -hmm. she has certain things she's particularly good at doing, mm -hmm. and in the language like French, where there are lots of translators, you might think, well, this this is an Anthea Bell book, or maybe this is slightly more a Frank Wynne book, or slightly mm -hmm. more a Sarah Adesone book. Mm. Um, so yes, I think there are, there is a certain kind of sympathy of, of uh, voice which is useful to have, um, and it has to be a book you don't mind um, inhabiting in a very intense way for, for weeks don't, and months. Or don't mind relaying that world in some <coughs> way, or thinking it's important to relay that world and pass it on. Well, that's certainly true, uh, especially when you're working in English, because with a relatively small amount that's translated into English compared to other languages, I'm talking about, about uh, fiction here, um, your job as a translator is also to be um, an advocate, an ambassador, and a lot of translators are driven by finding a writer they think is really wonderful, they really ought to, I mean people ought to be reading this person, and my friends can't read Agualuza's books until I've translated them and I really want them to because I think he's a magnificent writer and I, so I think there is there is that sense of um, I suppose that there's, a, there's a responsibility that comes with it as well but there is a, a, a driver of of, uh, of the work which is wanting to be a, wanting to proselytize on behalf of on behalf of this writer which does then mean that you, you uh, there is the responsibility if you're going to be that voice uh, in which this person is being uh, consumed. Mm. Consumed is a terrible word, but you know what I mean. Going back to Anthea Bell, a, a second, uh, uh, in, in fact, in a previous podcast, she, I, I think she said during it that um, w one of the uh, uh, one of the features of translation and of being a translator is creating an illusion. And, and 
course, illusion is the, is the stuff of fiction in any case. Mm. But uh, but related to that, I think she meant uh, that as a translator, you're you're manufacturing the illusion that the translator's voice is the author's voice, and that, well, I think and that you this want voice. To I mean, there, there there is there is some debate. But what I what I kind Indeed. of really want to happen is to get to the point where someone gets to the end of the book and goes, "Hang on a second, I don't read Portuguese." <laughs> um, there is a sort of sleight of hand, obviously. Um, and and the more you can fake the, the the sense of unmediated access to whatever it is. I mean, I I feel like I've read great nineteenth-century Russian novels. Um, my Russian isn't nearly good enough to do that, but I feel like I, I've read things that are sufficiently good that they've been able to fool me into believing I somehow, for those few hours, managed to read Russian. Hmm. One's always going to be, I mean, when I've heard the bits and pieces that I've translated, I, I, I feel uh, I'm translating what I hear and, and how I hear, um, uh, whether it's in verse or in prose. Um, and uh, that's also a large responsibility, isn't it? Because on the one hand, as you say, you might be wanting to proselytize a particular writer. On the other hand, you, you're communicating what you hear in that writer. Yes, I mean, and, and there are sort of two parts to that. One is actually to do with sound. One is to do literally with trying to convey something which has a particular sound. Mm -hmm. And the other is about uh, the fact that you're conveying your own particular interpretation. Um, and both those things are, of course, important. I mean, I think translators, we always talk about translators being very good, being very good readers. But it's always an interpretative reading, mm -hmm. like every kind of reading is. Um, if you put two translators to work on the same text, they're always going to end up with... In, entirely divergent versions, not just because they write differently and because they have a different arsenal of words they like to use and so forth. It's because they read differently and because they will have found different things and they will prioritise different things in the text they're reading. And then there is the actual, what you hear in terms of actual sound. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a lot of translators, like a lot of writers, will uh, listen to something being read in the original, will read it aloud themselves. But again, there will, you'll find with two translators on the same text, there will be a divergence between uh, the end product because they may both read their versions out loud and they have different accents and they sound slightly different. Um, we did the, a very nice exercise with uh, Frank Wynne and Sarah Adesone translating bits of the same text for a public event, we discussed the, 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 the variance between the two. This is by Halfon, isn't it? We did this one with, with, a, with a French text. We've uh -huh. we done quite a few of these. We've done about a dozen of these uh, right. duels. But the first one we did was between uh, Sarah and Frank. It was a French text by Alain Maboncou. Um And one of the things that was striking is actually um, they were both completely different, but Frank and Sarah sound different when they speak. They have different accents. They have different rhythms of speech. And so the, the tools with which they are measuring how something sounds and how something works on a kind of, you know, rhythm and how many syllables there are sort of basis, uh, are, are very different. Mamanku is Congolese, is he? Yes, Congolese. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, obviously, there's a great diversity of Frenches around there mm -hmm. and great diversities of the way that's going to be heard by a broadly European or even Francophone ear. Yes, of course, because you, you on something like that, you have to think about... If you're trying to do what I suppose a lot of translators are doing, just try to replicate the reading experience... You then have to have some thought to who that who that reader is, um, and when I've translated, I mean, all the languages I've translated from Portuguese, Spanish, and French are all languages which have multiple uh, locations homes, in the world. Homes, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, 
And so when I'm translating a, an Angolan writer like Agualuz and a Guatemalan writer like Alfon, um, on the one hand, I'm trying to replicate what to me seems like uh, the experience of reading it. You know, if there's a joke, I want that to be a joke. If it's funny here, sad here, I want it to be funny here or sad here. Um, but it's not always obvious who the original reader is. It may well be in Angola writing for um, a first reader in Lisbon, in Guatemala writing for a first reader in Buenos Aires or in, um, in Madrid. Um, this, of course, is magnified uh, by the question of which English you're writing for, whether your reader is going to be um, a reader here in the UK or in uh, Texas or in Cape Town or in Canberra or in... Mm. When uh, uh, I, I translated with a, with, a, with a colleague and friend, Delphine Grasse, a, a book of uh, Welbeck's poems, which was called in English The Art of, the, the Art of Struggle, and uh, reading out uh, became very important, uh, reading out the original and reading out the translation. Um, just to, to make sure that it, that it was working, I suppose. Uh, but uh, the, the varieties of ways in which each of the, both the original and the translations were read out was quite striking, uh, partly because Delphine is Francophone and I'm not, and that was one of our, the sources of our collaboration. Um, but, but the whole idea of reading out is, is, is uh, just as subjective as reading inwardly, isn't it, don't, don't you think? I think that's definitely true, but I think there are, there are some cases where I mean, I think it would be an amazing luxury if you're translating 600-page novels to be able to read the whole thing out loud. Mm -hmm. um, I have done it. Um, but I think there are some instances where it's, it's, it is a particularly useful kind of uh, touch paper, if you like. Mm. Um, touchstone. Touch paper is something completely different. Touchstone. Um, so dialogue, for example. Mm. You can actually measure something, um, which is... Uh, it's quite hard to pin down, except that you know when it's right and you know when it's wrong. Um, one of the things that then becomes the, the the test afterwards is, in some cases, you're if you are translating a novel which is going to expect it to sell in reasonable numbers, somebody somewhere is going to make an audio book, which means someone is actually going to have to an actor somewhere is going to have to make it work as an as a, a, a listened experience mm -hmm. rather than a, a, a visual text experience. Um, Certainly, there are a couple of books I've done this year which have audiobooks. One of them is, is out and one of them is coming. And there are a couple of things I just caught on the kind of last proof when I looked at the line and thought, out loud, that's going to sound really funny. Um, which may or not matter if you're talking about text, but I think, at least I, I think this is not just me, I do on some level hear text even when I'm reading it on a page. Mm -hmm. um, so I think something can jar to my ear, even if it's only in my head, if you see what I mean. It's, it's badly put, but um, one example I can, I can give you is this uh, a Spanish novel I translated last year, which is a, in English, it's in the UK, it's called The Seamstress, um, and it's uh, about a seamstress. And there is a moment in which she goes off to the shop to buy lots of different kinds of fabrics, and she buys, you know, three spans of this and 12 spans of that and a certain amount of um, satin and some how much of uh, velvet and so forth. Uh, and there is a line in the Spanish which tells you that she's bought seven of this unit, this span um, of uh, satin and it has a pattern on it. And the line in English said that she had gone to buy seven spans of pattern satin. 
And seven pounds of patent satin was fine on the page, and it means the right thing. But if that had got as far as the point where some <laughs> unfortunate actor had to make that sound like, you know, the way people talk. Um, <laughs> seven pounds of patent satin. It's going to great. sound as though a different idea, isn't it? It's going to sound like it a different like idea completely. Seuss, it does, yeah. Like, which is yeah. not the idea at all. <laughs> I do find, uh, you know, translated really very in a very limited way, but uh, the, the contiguity of translation and, and critical activity is very, very close, I must say, and for me personally. And, and the, the, the emphasis, the shift of emphasis towards translation does have to do with listening, you know, hearing, hearing rhythms. For example, if a translator, a Poulinaire, hearing uh, the rhythms in the prose that, he, that might be there in the verse or... Um, uh, just uh, or writing or translating an essay such as Gerard said, listening to the the rhythms of essays that might have been taken from previous centuries and uh, types of writing essay. Um, so it's, and, and it is it's a listening exercise, connect. isn't it? I, I think it is, and I think it also connects to the, the sound of the author's. It can connect to the sound of the author's actual spoken voice as well. Yeah. I mean, I like listening to authors reading. I, I usually have very little patience with authors reading their work, but people I'm translating, I like mm. hearing them read their own work in the original. I think yeah. you get all sorts of clues yeah. um, from hearing where they breathe mm. and, and hearing what the rhythms are like when they're spoken aloud, um, whether or not, or, or how you're going to replicate those in, in the translation is not a question, but uh, mm. yes, there are little indicators you get when, that, when it's actually, uh, when you're literally listening to sound. Uh, before going further into it, I want to talk a little bit about your, your other uh, activities and how translation might relate to that, to those, if, if they do, um, <laughs> because uh, you've, you've compiled uh, children's uh, guides to reading, haven't you? The, the Ultimate Reading Guide, the I think it's guides. called? Yes, I, I'm, I'm one of the editors of a series of reading guides for children called The Ultimate Book Guides, and I do a lot of work with, with children's books. Um, until recently, I've been doing a lot of translation work and a lot of children's book work, and they didn't... Uh, meet. They, they have just met, which is quite exciting. Um, but I've been editing with a couple of friends the series of reading guides, and I review children's books, and I, I'm editing now the new uh, Oxford Companion to Children's Literature. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of with, with part of me is, is very immersed in the children's book world. Um, but only recently I've started uh, to bring these two things together. I've, I've worked on a picture book, which was published this year, which was uh, which began that, life as a translation. Did it? Is that called Happiness is Watermelons on your head? Your head. Uh, <laughs> began as a translation, really. It was originally a, a, it, was a, it was a book published in Brazil, and it was originally a translation, and then it kind of freed itself from the original. Um, and I'm now uh, just finishing translating a series of children's books uh, for the same publisher. There's a publisher called Phoenix Yard Books. Is that right? also from Portuguese or Brazilian? Uh, those are from French. Mm -hmm. um, they are Quebecois books about a seven-year-old boy called Arthur. Um, and it's a series of uh, half a dozen books. Um, but what was interesting about the watermelon book is it was the first time that the two things which I know something about, one of them is how to translate and the other is how a children's book works, were actually quite useful. Mm. And I think I was originally asked to do that book because I'm a translator. And it turned out that the things that I understand, if, if such they are, uh, about how a picture book works that structurally, uh, turned out to be the most useful skills I had to bring to that to that particular job. Um, yes, it's been it's been quite a while in which those two those two strands of, of the work I've done uh, have been quite have been kept quite distinct. Uh, 
partly because, unfortunately, uh, we complain about how little we translate in this country, but it's particularly uh, grievous for, for children's books. Mm -hmm. There's very, very little translated uh, currently for children's, uh, children in this country. Um, I mean, Anthea, we mentioned, uh, does a fair bit, and there are a couple of other translators who do, but there's still very, very little. Anthea's translated Asterix, hasn't she? Translated Asterix, she translated <laughs> Cornelia Funke, and she translated a lot of uh, really, really fine children's writing. Mm. Um, but there aren't, there aren't many people, well, I was going to say, there's nobody like her, but there aren't many mm. people who, who are doing that. Mm. And for you, what, what, what are the particular, you know, particular issues in your head as, as you're trying to write from another language to, a, to an audience of children? I think translating for children, it, it feels like, and this is my experience, and I think this is probably true, it feels like you are pulling slightly further away from the original mm. um, in some respects. You, you, I, I feel slightly, and this is something which I, I, I talk to the publisher quite a lot, I feel slightly bolder in terms of the kind of things I feel I can change, um, even if it's just circumstantial cultural things, mm. change, you know, Canadian currency and place names mm. to uh, English currency and place names. Um, because on the one hand, you don't want there to be no s readers to have no exposure to things that are that are uh, unusual for them or, or distant for them. On the other hand, you're dealing with readers who don't have a huge frame of cultural reference. Mm. Um, and so you don't want also to have to explain all of these things. Uh, so certainly when I for children when I've been doing the, the, the Arthur books, Emma, the, the uh, publisher and I, did talk about which characters' names we were simply going to have to change mm. um, and place names and, and, as I say, currencies and measures and that kind of thing, which I would be very loath to do if I was translating. There would have to be a very good reason if I were translating for an adult mm. to, uh, you know, change well, meters and defeat, we argue about those things all the time, but but you wouldn't relocate things. No, there's no reason to change um, proper names, is there? Yeah. Or put names of places, yeah. Um, but on the other hand, as you say, uh, uh, just to get what you just said, a, a child has got, a, of whatever age, has got a more limited cultural reference mm. and geographical reference and just simply won't know. It's not, the, it, it's not so much that it would resonate differently in, in someone's ear, but it won't resonate in a child's ear at all. No, you actually have to explain mm. what this thing means. Mm. Um, and I don't think, I, mean, I, I suppose people are slightly squeamish about changing that kind of thing, but I think that you, the relationship between the thing which a book is doing in the cultural world of a seven-year-old is very mm. different to what it's doing in the cultural yeah. world of a 25-year-old. Yeah. And what about idiom? Uh, it must be either as a translator or as a writer of children's fiction, it must be quite difficult to pitch the idiom in one's own mind back to one's own childhood or back to childhood children now who don't speak the same way as we spoke when we were children. Today. But in a way it's more difficult for a translator because you don't want it to sound particular. Mm. I mean, if I was... I mean, I don't, I don't write fiction and I wouldn't begin to know where to start. But if I were suddenly to decide to write a book for a 10-year-old set in South London... At least there is a 10-year-old South London English which exists. I might struggle to find it because it's not my natural mode. But there is that sort of voice. And you can get it right and you can get it wrong. Mm. The difficulty mm. is if I'm translating a book whose narrator is a 10-year-old um, in Buenos Aires, what I have to do is I have to create an idiom which feels local in South London and in Texas and in Cape Town and in Canberra. All those places I mentioned are going to have to be able to consume that, this thing mm. And it's got to work for them as a natural 
um, as a natural uh, idiom to read. Um, so the difficulty is finding the, the phrase Anthea uses is, is non-specific demotic. <laughs> it has to sound uh, local and natural everywhere. What you don't want is, and this is true for children or for, for adults, what you don't want is uh, to translate, if you happen to live in Glasgow, you don't want to translate your Buenos Aires gang book into something which sounds like it's from Glasgow, because that's only fine if you're in Glasgow. Then becomes a problem if you're reading it in California. Then everyone, it starts sounding like Earth and Welsh, or it starts sounding like The Wire if you happen to be translating it into Baltimore, you know. Um, you, you have to find a way of creating an idiom which is, when you're talking about idiom, when you're talking about something natural like that, uh, which is which gives the impression of being immediate and specific and natural, uh, but actually is not so specific that anyone can pin it down. Hmm. So there are certain things you can do. You can contract do not to don't because that's a very common lazy way of speaking. But do you want to drop H's? Because that is very natural if you are within the sound of Bow Bells, but is not actually one of the idiom, one of the kind of linguistic uh, the, the speech ticks of people in lots of places. But what about translate? Just to play devil's advocate for a minute, because I understand uh, you know the, the general point you're making. I think, which is that, uh, as I understand it, which is that a, a translation ought not to be more unnatural an experience than you might than you might imagine reading the original would well, be not, for it's somebody. It's not just to do un with being unnatural. I think you it, you may want it to sound odd. But I don't think you'd want it to sound odd in a specific way that makes you think like you're watching the wire. Yeah, that's what I mean. You don't, want to, you don't want it to sound odd in a way that it wasn't before. Perhaps, yeah, something to have, like to have that. particular associations yeah. that, that come with yeah. with a very specific. Right. Uh, well, I just wanted to wonder. I mean, there, there might, in fact, be value in, in translating uh, Buenos Aires uh, street cred slang in, into that of Baltimore. I mean, mm. perhaps one could do that. I think you could, but I think you're doing something slightly different because. Um, the kind of associations a reader will have uh, may simply not be the the useful ones. You see what I mean? Mm. Um, but this does also go back to this question of who, in so far as you actually think about such things, the original reader is. Mm. And of course, if you're reading a, a novel set in, in a, a gang in Buenos Aires and you're actually in uh, Barcelona, you will, there will be that sense of it being a particular place which is not here. So you do, there, there is a question of, of the extent to which you're deciding in your head who that original reader is and what the experiences you're trying to replicate for you, for your reader, um, but I think there are there are sort of unhelpful echoes you get from certain uh, certain kinds of very recognisable idioms because the reader your reader may be in Glasgow but your reader may also be in in Dallas. Well, what 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 about for example if if you know, going back to the idea that one might uh, be working from some kind of affective, emotional uh, sense of, of rapport with the original something. So what happens if you, you know, if you had grown up on the streets of Baltimore and you came across, uh, and you also, you also had Hispanic, you know, background, you came across this novel about, you know, Buenos Aires gangsters and you wanted to translate it into your own image, uh, image I, I if you like, that, and, that and that own can, idiom. That can work very well. Because it would, it would have a... Um, it would have a readership. I don't know, I don't know mm. if it would be restricted or not, because uh, uh, English readers, English language readers, mm. like to hear the variety yeah. of English, don't they? 
I think I think and, that and, I think, and I think it can work very well. I mean, mm. one example is um, someone like Sarah Ardizona who translates. Uh, there's a radical phase again. Uh, mm. Sarah translates from French, and Sarah translates into a very particular mm. South London, a particular kind of slang, um, and she worked with a lot of you know teenagers who live near where she lives to, to mm. get this absolutely right, mm. the slang and the rhythms and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that works very well. She's found the, the voice for Pfizer in English. But that voice is Pfizer's from South London. Yeah. Um, That's which, which, which is, is, is great. It works very well. It's a really, really uh, effective and powerful and very striking voice. Um, but, it's, uh, but it's something which you would notice and which would feel... Um, foreign in a very particular way if you happen to be in Chicago yeah. or you happen to be in, yeah. in yeah. No, I mean, uh, there, there are, I, I think I understand I mean, there, there are different things to be gained in different approaches, isn't it, and lost um, Well, I mean, you do get a particular <laughs> sort of there's a, an amazing kind of energy and kind of muscle you get from a really coherent real uh, idiomatic register and, and, and rhythm Hmm. What uh, once I've been uh, looking at uh, your translations of uh, your translation, first of all, of the Book of Comedians uh, by Agualuto, whom you mentioned before, I mean, an, an Angolan writer hmm. uh, born in the seventies, I think. Um, uh, what what drew you to him in the first place? I, I must say, I found it a, a thoroughly engaging and fascinating book in a, in a number of ways. And well, I wanted was, to draw you the, out a little bit on it. He was the writer I, I, I mentioned. You might discover because I, I read him from his publisher. Yes. Uh, I'd never heard of him. I hope you won't mind my saying that. <laughs> I, I'd never read him. And it was a book called, uh, in English we ended up calling it Creole. It's called Nassan Creole, Creole Nation in Portuguese. Um, and I read him with without any idea that I was going to translate him, which is probably quite helpful. Um, I do on the whole, and this is heresy to some people, I do on the whole prefer to translate books that I haven't yet read when I start on the first page, not knowing how it's going to end when I start translating. Um, mm. But in this case, I was asked originally to read the book, and I read it and thought it was extraordinary, beautiful writing, full of stories, full of odd ideas, um, and also something which I could hear in English. I mean, I think he, he weirdly, well, he, well, I think he's one of the best writers I've translated. I also think in some respects he's one of the easiest to translate. He, he, he sits in English quite, quite comfortably, uh, which not everybody does. Um, so, and, and what do you think that's about? I mean, because I've, I've certainly found uh, your rendering of it in English that it, it uh, it's it's a distinctive and, and, and absorbing. Um, so I wondered what you were um, hearing in the in the original Portuguese that allowed you to do that. I think part of it is going to be. I mean, I haven't analysed this, but I imagine part of it is to do with the kind of writers he reads and admires. Mm-hmm. He, is very well read in English language writers as well as Latin American writers, mm. um, and so his influences, which will determine his style and his rhythm and everything else, uh, culturally will be the place where he is writing, which uh, at the time was was Luanda in Angola. Um, but I think he also has uh, a European and a North American sensibility in terms of some of the uh, some of the aspects to his to the voice to the style. Um, so no, it's an absolute delight. I'm hoping to do another one of his soon. We've done four books together, and it's it's going to be one of those 
when I, when I get to start the next one, it's going to be an absolute joy. I sit down, I know what he sounds like, I know how it feels. I know, I mean, he, he has an English voice now, I hope. Um, it's going to be wonderful and easy and lovely. <laughs> the four we've done, I think, in, in some respects, quite different. But, uh, but there's already a mixture of languages in the original, and all mixture of cultural references to call it such a the, large thing with such a small phrase. Yeah, there is. There's a lot of. I mean, I, I've uh, never been to Angola. Uh, I would love to go, but I've never been. And my, my knowledge of the of the culture, the, the little cultural units which slip mm. into any book to do with mm. what people are wearing and what people are eating and how people are talking. Um, all of those I, I know only through these books. Um, and I'm again, it's a, it's a question of faking it. Um, <laughs> But there are also that his books are often set in Angola, set in Luanda. Um, but there is also there are other African countries in them. There is Brazil in them. There, there, a lot of it is about the relations between these countries. So it's quite it's quite a broad canvas in, yeah. in, in cultural terms. Well, the Book of Chameleons is probably the most the most kind of rooted in one place of of the books of his I've done. In in bits of bits of Angola. Yes, in, yeah. in Luanda at a particular time, yeah. In, yeah. largely in one particular house. You know. Yeah. Oh, I see. It, it um, is, yes, it, it is located in that. But the, and then a, there's a province, Shaibi, isn't it? Them, which, yeah, which, there, which is a kind of, of don't go there kind of province. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, but there's there, there isn't. I mean, there are others which are set in Angola and also Brazil and also Portugal. Mm. There is uh, one in Goa. Um, my, I think my favourite of the ones I've done of his book called My Father's Wives, which uh, is a sort of road trip which goes from Angola right down the uh, west coast of, of southern Africa and round South Africa and up, up the east coast through Mozambique. Um, so it's so the, there there is kind of cultural shifting and there and those little details of, 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 of culture change from page to page. Yeah. I, I think that's that's true of the Book of Chameleons as well, isn't it? Because there's nothing like travelling from an armchair, as it were, and, and uh, at, just for the just um, benefit of our listeners, you know, it's, it, one of the themes of the book, I suppose, is, is genealogy and fake genealogy and mm-hmm. invention and the relation between that and fiction writing, but also cultural fictions and cultural identities. So uh, that there are a number of real and fantastical journeys that take, yes, take place, true. aren't there? So I just wondered... Uh, Again, is it, we're, we're, there must perhaps you'd like to say a bit more about about the, uh, the combination of hearing the sound of the language and and the content of the novel and and, and how all that affected how you approach translating it. That's the reason that's a difficult question. I will attempt to answer it, but I will first complain. <laughs> um, the reason difficult question is because uh, I can probably find. Uh, an explanation for something which wasn't actually in my mind at the time. Uh, most of the time, I'm translating. Uh, all of these things are happening in the sense that I am aware of sounds and I'm aware of tensions between um, cultural language, say. Uh, but it's almost never um, on a level in which I'm dealing with it deliberately. Uh, so I can I can sort of look back, though I'm usually reluctant to look back at a piece of work and try and understand what the factors were in play uh, in making a predictive decision or finding a voice and that kind of thing. But it's always, it always, it's always slightly cheating, I think, um, because I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. Um, I have had 
people write dissertations on translations I've done, and they've sent they've interviewed me for these things, and they send them to me afterwards, and they, I, I read paragraphs which begin with words like Hans' strategy in this passage. <laughs> And of course, I didn't have a strategy any more than Aguilar's had a strategy when he wrote it. Um, you, you know, you, you find something and it doesn't sound right, and then you kick it around a bit and then it sounds right, and then you move on to the next one. Um, what I probably will say in relation to things like finding a sound for a particular book, or finding a voice for a particular book on a particular theme, is the way I tend to work. I tend to do really quick, really bad first drafts. And then the, the, imp the improvement happens kind of layer by layer. What I don't do is what some people do, which is get that first sentence right and then move on to the second sentence. Get the second sentence right, and not until you've absolutely nailed that do you move on to the third sentence. That would make me crazy working on that. But what it means is that things like, because I do that first draft quickly, things like pace and rhythm and those things, they come quite easily because I'm typing at reading speed, pretty much, for that. Um, and then the tinkering happens with little commas and, and you know, 150,000 very, very small things. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is a, it's a layering process rather than a kind of horizontally, mm. I don't know, accreting process, if you see mm. what I mean. Um, and that feels like the most natural way of, of, of uh, finding that voice partly because you're sort of all do, doing the whole book at the same time. Particularly with in, in a book uh, like the Book of Comedians, which we're talking about by Agor Luther, um, which has a number of different tones in it, mm. doesn't it? Um, from, uh, I mean, there's a unifying tone as well, I suppose, which is somewhat distant, somewhat melancholic, mm. somewhat impassioned, somewhat um, curious. Mm. Um, but within that, there's well, the narrator the, for anyone who hasn't read it, the well, narrator of this book is a, is a, a gecko on the wall, um, and I think it's a very credible voice for a gecko. Personally, uh, it's a very, very strange and wonderful creation. Because um, sometimes the gecko, if I can, talks in his own voice, so to speak, and sometimes yeah. there are other voices that come in, aren't there? Which yeah. so you've got a combination of a gecko voice and and uh, gecko gecko observations, yes. exactly. Yes. <laughs> Uh, which produces a whole series of, of micro changes of tonality all the time, isn't it? So I but, it's, but it's usually relatively small. It's texture. It's relatively yes. small bits of bits of texture. Um, I think on the whole, most of Aguilera's writing is quite uh, is quite even. Um, by which I don't mean it's flat. But I don't think it's that at all. But I think there is a, a particular kind of. Uh, Agwood is a sentence, or Agwood is a rhythm, which you would recognise in Portuguese, and I hope you would in, in English. Um, which means that even with these little, I think quite small fluctuations of, of inflection, um, you're, you're not shifting from voice to voice. Mm -hmm. Which does mean that in, in some books, like the, um, I mentioned my father's wives, that there are actually shifts in narrator. But there is an evenness which covers all of them, which means you often don't know in the Portuguese and in the English, you don't know immediately who's speaking, because there isn't a huge divergence between uh, the way different characters speak. Hmm. You, you, you mentioned the word flat there, and uh, uh, interestingly, the, the word flat occurred to me as I was reading through, but, but in a good way. Um, 
I think it's even. I think it's smooth. Because it's because um, it struck me that you know the whole the, the choice of a, of, a, of a gecko, a, a lizard, a cold-blooded mm. animal, and it all relates in various ways to other issues of skin in, in, mm. in the book, isn't it? And I mean, the, the, one of the central characters is an albino negro, is an albino mm. black person. Um, so um, it, it's, it's as though flatness were actually valued over kind of illusory depth, where we think we know where we are and everything's in perspective. Mm. You know, and well, flatness very, is actually very, a bit better it's very than depth. Even, and it's very kind of even. <laughs> This is quite an even-tempered sort of gecko. It's, it's very, uh, it's sort of measured and quite careful. Um, I don't think it's flat monotonous at all. No, no, I think quite. There's none of that. I think yeah. it's full of colour. Yeah. But I think it's also quite poised. I think that's writing is mm. always quite poised. Mm. Um, which is one of the reasons why when, you know, you're working on the second or third draft, the things you are changing are... Mm putting in a comma in the middle and then taking it out again. Um, because there is a sort of balance and there's a carefulness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a funny mixture because I, I do also think of him in a funny way as kind of exuberant because it's full of colour and it's full of yeah. stories. But, yeah. but, but it's not flashy. It's not flashy prose at all, which, which again sits quite nicely in, yeah. in English. Yeah, it's also very witty at parts, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, Drawing, I mean, in general, drawing some of those characters together, it's, it's, it's uh, I suppose you might call writing like this, we were talking about this a little bit before we started, it's, it's literary, isn't it? It's, 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 uh, it's it imbued in the history of literary forms and the history of its tonalities, the way of, its, way of engaging with the readers. Um, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not simple-minded in any way. Um, it's not, a, it's not a, obviously about a plot or about a particular setting. No, no, it's, no, it's a book no. that's worth reading a second time, essentially. It's a, it's a book which, where, where there will be stuff which you won't get yeah. just by... I mean, uh, you, know, you hope that people want to turn the pages to find yeah. out what happens. Um, but you could go back and do it again yeah. and, and find and, things in it. And nor is it in, in any particular way about uh, you know, the historical difficulties in Angola. It's, it's, it's much more... I mean, it engages with that in, in a variety of ways, many yes, of them indirect. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask... If, 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 if there are any issues in, in translating that kind of book for a broad English-speaking audience, uh, where, if, if I'm not being too unfair, uh, sometimes a, 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 you know, the wider English-speaking audience of, of literary texts uh, likes more to know where they are. Uh, I think there are issues. I, I think there are issues which are as much commercial as uh, aesthetic, if you like. Um, there is always this anxiety that translated fiction won't sell in English, um, which up to a point is true, but I'm convinced that this is not because it's not because it's translated, it's because on the whole translated fiction has typically been literary fiction in English. Um, literary fiction in English doesn't sell terribly well whether it's translated or not. Um, one of the things that's been interesting to see about the, the, the Scandinavian crime, the success of that, is that uh, that sells very well in spite of the fact that it's translation. Not because uh, it is, and, um, but you sell Scandinavian crime in the same way that you sell, sell American crime or Scottish crime. Um, so I think there are challenges to, to, to finding readers for a book like this. Um, but I think in a way that the sort of... I think the foreignness of it isn't a problem, but I think there are... There are expectations which may be to do with structure, that may be to do with form, um, that a lot of readers are going to be 
appear to be slightly nervous about. Um, a, a book I translated called The Piano Cemetery by the Portuguese novelist José Luis um, Peixot is, is an, an interesting example of that. I think, it's, I think it's a beautiful piece of writing. So do I. But it's a, difficult, um, it's a difficult read in the sense that you're not always sure when you are, you're not always sure where you are. There are stories which sort of repeat each other, you're not sure which of these two incarnations it is. And uh, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant book, but it's not um, an easy read for people who have very clear expectations of uh, narrative form, who have very clear expectations of uh, what a narrative voice is supposed to do. Yeah. This is, a, I must say, a very moving book indeed, uh, by a reasonably young writer, isn't it, 30s or 40s? Or somewhere uh, there? Yes, so, 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 I mean to say, you know, um, Somebody developing a voice is, is not necessarily going to be wanting or, uh, straight away to, to box themselves in. So that even though there are, there are a number of different narrative voices, different strands, it's all uh, the different situations are interconnected with each other and dovetail with each other mm. in a confusing way, as you say. Uh, that's got very little to do with what we think of as postmodern, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, it's hard to pin down why it, it is so different, but I think... Uh, uh, but it's interesting that he can get away with this in Portugal. Uh, but, but he, but he sells very strong, very strong emotional content, doesn't it? Mm. Whereas uh, we tend to think a little bit in, in the sort of, well, I suppose in academic circles, you know, that uh, postmodern game playing is about e evacuating affect mm. and emotion from it, whereas this is completely the opposite. No, this has it has a huge emotional resonance, and I think part part of the the, the reason for this is uh, in Portugal, where he's writing his books, I don't think it seems as odd as it does here. I don't mm. think he is seen as a massively experimental novelist. Mm. He, he's, a, I think, a brilliant novelist, and he sells very mm. well, and he's successful. Um, but I don't think he would be seen no. as... Um, and I, I think it's, it's just something we, we... Because we are, I don't know, scared or careless or ignorant or something. Um, because it's a little bit different from what we're used to, and mm. he doesn't at all write like Zadie Smith. No. We somehow think that this, it, ha it must be uh, massively experimental. Mm. Um, but and so we want to, to to put it in the box with all those things that are purely bits of you know ludic. Uh, and as a translator, you just pull all that to one side, you and, and uh, you know cope with the problem later with the publisher that sort of thing you just uh, yes I mean I think what you hear and what you see uh, of course and and the publisher I mean in, in this case I was published by Bloomsbury here a very fine publisher uh, and who brought him to me it wasn't someone I discovered mm. and had to persuade anyone um, they had published a book of his before which in fact uh, curiously I'd read him first in English because um, there was a book of his called Blank Gaze published in an English translation by Richard Zenith um, <laughs> That has another title, doesn't it? Uh, the, um, it's called Blank Gaze Here, and in, it has an American title, which is called The, 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 the Implacable... Uh, anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yes, anyway. It has, a, it has a slightly odd title in, yeah. in the American edition. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yes, the publisher, the mm. publisher uh, found him and were very excited by him. And as I say, they, they published... Um, blank gaze first and mm -hmm. so one of the reasons this is quite interesting is because it then meant that when I started translating him there was sort of he had an English embodiment already there was an English voice um, which I think is not exactly the same as mine but I think it did it will have affected the way I I wrote him in English the mm. fact that uh, my first experience of him was as an English writer 
as a particular kind of resonance which that translation had. I think it's a mm. brilliant translation, in fact, uh, the, the blank gaze translation. Um, but it will have meant there was a sort of, uh, there was something against which I was calibrating the, the voice in English. I think the book, um, in, in, its, in its range of, of, of content and uh, affective and emotional way of engaging with the readers, is, among so many other things, uh, provides a sort of salutary lesson to the translator um, because it's all, it's, it's an interconnection of positions and, and situations which are on it, which are which can't be communicated to others. Mm. Uh, I mean, in, in, in a most striking way, and I have to say, very moving indeed uh, in, in English. I've already read it in English, your English. Um, you know, it, it begins with a, a person's account of his own dying, doesn't mm. it? Um, and uh, it's an extraordinarily powerful uh, account uh, of, of grief from the, the dying person's point of view. Mm. And, and, uh, from the dead person's point of view. Dying and, uh, and, yes. and then dead. You, yes, you, right. you get him from, from both sides. Yes. E exactly. Which is, mm. you know, unfortunately, a, a, a complete impossibility. Mm. Um, it, it, you yeah, know, it happens in fiction all the time. It, not, not in fiction in English, but there are... There are precedents in that. Yes, it, it does. But, but in this case, and I think so uh, powerfully inflected by the fact that it existed in translation, mm -hmm. it seems also to be engaging with the fact that, you know, that this really is a fantasy. You are going to have to live with, with grief. You know, mm -hmm. You're going to have to live with the fact that the original is, is... You're only getting the English if you don't speak any Portuguese. You are just going to have to... Move on with that and, and engage, you know. And I think There's a question a of whether you want strong. whether you want people to to have that in mind, though, or whether or, or the extent to which, as we were saying earlier, you really want them to feel as though you want them to be unaware of the loss, um, which which is part is part of our job when we're translating. I think um, strikes me. Um, sparing your blushes, that in, in in that particular book, you 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 know you are you are giving the reader both. Mm. You know, it reads, it doesn't read, it reads like English, or the English that I understand, that resonates in my ears. Mm. And there are, there are a number of, again, we, we, we might have time for it, there are a number of different ways of writing in it as well. It's not just, yes. it's, not, it's not uniform in that way at all. Um, but at the same time, it, it is so utterly in, imbued, it's written from the position of loss, after mm. all, uh, that that starts to stretch a little bit into the fact to the one sense of, of, of reading a translation. You know. Well, there is, there is a sort of... Um, it, even though it's the kind of things that are happening in it are very varied, and the kind of perspectives mm -hmm. that are very varied, you know, the, the voice is sometimes younger and sometimes older mm -hmm. and sometimes in a moment of passion or a moment of loss or whatever it may be, there is all, always, I think, a sort of uh, a, a background hum, as it were. Mm -hmm. there, is always, there is something which holds the whole thing together. Uh, and I don't know what it is. It kind of feels like a feels like a color, I suppose, more than a sound. Mm -hmm. um, it, I, 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 in spite of not being, not having a, a synesthetic bone in my body, that I have have a sense of the, of color in this book, um, of the, yeah. the the writing itself. Um, it must be a very useful and powerful thing to hold on to when you're translating. Is a yeah. sense of color. It's like a, it's like flavor, or like yeah. or like a background music or something. Mm. Um, and I think there is something which is. Uh, which is established by that initial voice, which is, let me tell you about the day I died, that yeah. um, even when the voices shift and even when the, the settings and the tone quite, quite a lot 
shifts, um, in some cases back and forth in relatively short order, um, there is something which is sustained all the way through. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that thing which, which you get at the very beginning, mm -hmm. uh, which is that uh, extraordinary uh, sort of lo lost voice from the other side. Mm. Good. Well, thank you very much once again for coming in. Uh, what, maybe I could uh, ask you a, a general question I've asked others. I mean, if uh, uh, what would you like to say, if, if anything, uh, to people who, are, who feel they've got the translation bug, the translation passion? What would you like to say to them about how they oh, should... Oh, it's great. <laughs> yeah. It's great. I love it. Um, I suppose there, there are... There are two sides to it. One is it's a very easy job to do because uh, you can pick up a book and do it. It's a very difficult job to get into as a job. It's a very difficult profession to get into because it's competitive and um, the market is difficult. And there are all sorts of reasons. It's, there are all sorts of reasons it's difficult. It's it's a relatively easy job to get better at, which I think is quite important. I mean, I think there are ways of becoming better, uh, which have to do with reading and writing. You know, mm. obvious things. Um, and reading, I think, you know, the, one of the most important things I think to do if you want to be a translator is you have to read more and more and more uh, in the language you're translating into. Of course, you have to know your way around French writing if you're translating from French, but I think you also need to be uh, exploring the, the, the language which, are, which is going to be your, your toolbox. You have to... Do the, change metaphors, you have to exercise all those different muscles. Mm -hmm. You can't be a translator if you can only do one kind of prose. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be able to do, uh, this year for me it's the Zangolan writer and it's this really silly rhyming picture book and it's a Guatemalan short story and it's uh, Arthur, a seven-year-old Quebecois boy. Um, you have to be able to have 25 different writing careers. So becoming as flexible as you can with the language in which you're writing. Mm. This is ultimately a writing job. More than anything else, you have to be a writer. Um, that is obviously the most, in terms of the, the, the craft of it, that's the most mm. useful skill you have. And in a sense, the, the other bit, the, the, the consuming the first language before you produce the second, that is easier to fake. If you are translating a French novel, if you don't have absolutely you know if you have to use a dictionary then you can use a dictionary if you you know if you if there is vocabulary you haven't got you can get it mm -hmm. if there is information i've translated four angular novels without being an angola but i can tell when i don't know something and i know to ask absolutely. um i can't fake the writing in english mm -hmm. um so i think i think there's this is probably changing now but i think i think one of the problems we've had for a while is there's been this sense that the the, the job of the translator has been a sort of more, more like a glorified linguist than than a particular kind of writer, um, and I certainly feel. I mean, the the, the joy of it is is the writing as much as anything else. Yes, um, and that's it, the joy for the reader too. I think. I mean, yes, I, because I think most mostly, or at least I hope, readers read translations like they read everything else. Mm. Um, I, I would be rather dispirited if I thought people kept you know, reading my translations and stopping every sentence going, that was an interesting choice. <laughs> yes, it's funny how he chose to add a comma here and there isn't one in the original. You want people to to uh, inhale the book in the same way that they would inhale the book if they thought it was written in English. Mm. Um, so, uh, yes, it, it's in, in many respects it's a piece of writing like any other piece of writing. It just has 
extraordinarily rigorous constraints mm. because there is a constraint which isn't just telling you, you know, 14 lines, 10 syllables per line. It's actually telling you what the line has to say. You just have to figure out how to say it. Good. Daniel Hahn, thanks so much. Thank you.